The information conveyed in this podcast is for educational purposes only and does not substitute for clinical advice or consultation. This is Dr. Mehul Mankad, and welcome to the Psychiatry and Law Podcast, Episode 11, Prisoner Rights. I'm Andrew Nanton. I'm a forensic psychiatrist in Oregon, one of the affiliate faculty with Oregon Health and Science University. Dr. Nanton, thank you so much uh, for taking time out of your busy day to talk with us about this uh, important topic on uh, prisoner rights and prisoner health care. I think uh, people listening, they, they may wonder, you know, why should we care about prisoners' rights? These are people who've been convicted of some sort of crime, uh, maybe a, a terrible offense, and why should they have any rights while they're behind bars? Although some people tend to take a pretty dim view of prisoners, one of the things that I've learned in working with them is that for the most part, many of them are people from a pretty rough background who have made some bad choices, but a lot of the crimes that they are serving time for are not necessarily violent crimes. So everybody has rights, even prisoners. I think everybody's heard about the right of freedom from cruel and unusual punishment. If we extrapolate from that, there are a few other things that are in place there too. People who can't leave a prison in order for it not to be a cruel and unusual environment should also have access to health care, including mental health care. So you're saying that society has some something to gain from giving rights to prisoners? I certainly think so. If nothing else, it is the dignity of saying that we as a society hold ourselves to a standard that we don't treat human beings terribly. So maybe uh, kind of thinking about it a bit further, one way to gauge uh, any particular society or government is to think about how it treats the least of the individuals in that society. I think that's certainly a fair way to say it. What sorts of rights do prisoners have that relate to health care while they're incarcerated? Obviously, critical health conditions can't be ignored or swept under the rug. Injuries that they get while they're in prison need to be attended to. Uh, the access to health care doesn't necessarily extend to, for example, cosmetic dermatologic treatment, although there may be some exceptions to that, interestingly. But it is a... Uh, fundamental right that prisoners should be able to access health care, get the medications that they need to address their health problems, and be able to follow up with medical professionals who are trained appropriately to handle their medical needs. How do prisons handle the issue of disabilities with people that are living with disabilities and then get incarcerated? According to the Supreme Court, the prison's in our country are government institutions that have to follow the Americans with Disabilities Act just like everybody else. And if a reasonable accommodation can be made, then they're required to do so. Are there examples that you've seen where prisoners' disabilities are accommodated? Common things might include things like crutches or a wheelchair. Those are things that need to be provided and managed appropriately if that's what a person needs to be able to get around. With, with regards to what, what we do with mental health care, what sorts of rights do prisoners have? Although not every possible intervention is covered, in general, they have a right to access for the treatment of mental illnesses. Interestingly, they do not necessarily have the right to drug and alcohol treatment, which is surprising given the 
preponderance of addiction problems in the incarcerated population. One of the things I've seen with uh, access to mental health care is that prisoners are screened for mental health symptoms, particularly severe ones such as suicidal ideation, when they change custody or enter a new facility. Yes, typically on intake, an inmate will be asked to disclose any health problems that they have, including mental health problems, diagnoses, medications that they take, and the dosages if they're aware of them. And then specifically, they will often ask a prisoner in in a written form about suicide or thoughts of suicide. Typically, in many places around the country, this is also done verbally in addition to on a written form because the risk of suicide, particularly in the first 24 hours in a lockup, is very high. Now, is this sort of screening that's done with new detainees or new prisoners, is is that something that has to be done by a mental health professional, someone who's a license holder, or is that something that the prison or jail can delegate uh, to other staff? It is often delegated to correctional staff, perhaps a some kind of health tech, but it is generally being uh, applied by people who don't have any mental health background. It's something that has to be done, but it's not necessarily something that is done uh, routinely by licensed mental health professionals. Now, for people who are listening, uh, they may or may not appreciate the difference between a jail setting, which has a high proportion of individuals that are going through courtroom procedures and may not yet be sentenced versus prisons, which mainly house people who are convicted of felonies. Is there a difference between the rights that individuals have in jails versus prisons? Yes, there is. There are a lot of rights that are lost regardless of what kind of correctional setting you're in. However, there are some additional protections that are afforded people who are not yet deemed to be guilty and sentenced to incarceration. One of the biggest for psychiatrists to be aware of is that for someone who is pretrial, they are typically due more process for involuntary commitment than someone who has already been adjudicated. So it sounds like people who are pretrial or going through trial may have a few more rights as citizens than those who are convicted of felonies. That's right. But it's perhaps less than you would think, given the fact that somebody who is in jail awaiting trial has not yet been convicted of anything. You know, one argument that I've heard about the reason that settings like prisons and jails are required to offer health care and mental health care is that the detained individual or the inmate cannot go and seek and purchase those services on the free market. They're captive. Yes, and in fact, inmates are an interesting subset of the American populace in that the Supreme Court has outlined them as the only group that has a constitutionally protected right to health care. That's uh, interesting, and that, that may not be something that a lot of people realize or understand. Now, that health care and mental health care that prisoners and pretrial detainees receive, what sort of quality benchmarks does it have to meet? Is it the same sort of care that they would find in the community? Is there some sort of standard? Ideally, it's the same standard as they would find in the community. Because of the limitations of transporting people in and out of jail and the security risks associated with that, Most correctional settings are pretty cautious about 
for example, outside referrals to specialists, et cetera, although they will provide that access if it's needed. If, though, an inmate does not receive care that is of the highest quality, the Supreme Court's ruling on what would qualify as malpractice is a lot different than what would qualify as malpractice in the community. According to the Supreme Court, the standard is deliberate indifference. Deliberate indifference means that somebody knew that there was a medical issue and ignored it. So that sounds like a pretty low standard, deliberate indifference, versus uh, some sort of medical malpractice standard uh, where you're meeting what you know community clinicians would have done in that circumstance. Yes, when I say a high standard, maybe a better word is a high bar to meet for a person to allege that their medical care while they were incarcerated was inadequate. There's another term that I've heard applied to prisoners, and I guess I hear this more often when people are talking about wanting to study inmates and do research on them, but I, I wonder if it applies to healthcare, and that term is coercion. Why is that a big deal? Obviously, inmates have very little control over their environment, and there are even small accommodations that you or I would take for granted that can be pretty compelling in a setting where you don't have a lot of freedom or flexibility. In that case, offering someone treatment, even if it's an experimental treatment, might sound very appealing if it's not a condition that they would be able to get treated otherwise and might lead them to underestimate the potential risks of that treatment. And so even though it's not overtly intended to be coercive, the potential rewards of participating in research, one, being able to have access to that care or two, even a trivial amount of reimbursement might be disproportionately attractive to an incarcerated population. So that sounds like kind of like a medical ethical concern. So when we think about uh, decisional capacity and someone's ability to freely and voluntarily consent, this question of coercion sounds like uh, prisoners may not be able to give uh, full informed consent for kind of complicated or experimental or risky medical procedures. I think that's a very valid concern to have. One of the problems that it gets us into, though, is that, for example, in my work with the juvenile correctional population, there's very little research about them as a group regarding the effectiveness and efficacy of different treatments. Oh, that's a good point. Therefore, we're left to extrapolate from what is out there in standard populations who are quite different. So if we're so concerned about coercion, then that leads to a lack of research, and then we actually have less to offer ill or mentally ill inmates. Yeah. So it sounds like it's kind of a, a vicious cycle where if we are so concerned about coercion, then we have less research about inmates and then we have less to offer them. And so then there's a greater concern about coercion. It, it, sounds, it sounds like a pretty terrible loop. It's a very complicated problem because no matter where you draw the line, there are going to be times when you wish it was a little bit further ahead or a little bit further back. There's no real perfect place where we can draw a distinction. Severe and persistent mental illness is overrepresented in the prison population. I've heard estimates as high as 10% of inmates in some populations have schizophrenia. The other kind of group of inmates that people are concerned about are geriatric inmates. The tough-on-crime laws that led to long sentences have kind of created a generation of inmates who are now aging rapidly, 
uh, into their 50s and 60s and beyond uh, with, with little possibility of release. And so when you're confronted with an inmate who lacks the capacity to make decisions, either because they're grossly psychotic or they're demented, or for some other reason, maybe some medical reason like delirium, how do you get around this issue of coercion? One way to get around the problem of coercion is to have a court appoint a proxy decision maker that acts on that person's behalf to make decisions in their best interest if they're not able to do so themselves. Obviously, that's not ideal. That's not the same as the person being able to make those decisions themselves. But it does allow some protection against the correctional institution making decisions based only on what is convenient for them. So there's a a case that I remember studying from uh, when I was in my forensic training, and it was called uh, Washington v. Harper. And I wonder if that case is something that is still relevant and is something that is, is kind of talked about. Washington v. Harper is still very relevant. What it requires, it's a Supreme Court holding, and what it requires is that a decision to involuntarily medicate some be made by a multidisciplinary panel, and that typically includes a psychiatrist and often a community member and perhaps an inmate representative. It can be slightly different at different institutions. The idea there is that the institution or a representative of the institution isn't the sole person making the medical decisions for that person because they may have a conflict of interest. Their desire to medicate someone may be more out of what's convenient for them, which obviously is not medically ethical if they're not targeting a specific illness or disease. How often do things like uh, Harper panels uh, convene? Is this something that's like kind of a rare once in a while thing or, or it's a pretty routine function? Well, given the uh, booming population of the severely mentally ill that you referenced earlier, it's getting more and more common all the time. Wow. So this is something that anyone who's interested in correctional medicine or correctional psychiatry would, would need to become familiar with. Yes. Something else that I've heard referenced kind of more and more is the psychological effects of being in a supermax prison or solitary confinement or special housing or administrative segregation. There's a lot of different words for it, but the word that I think a lot of people know is, uh, is solitary. Is there a role for mental health clinicians to evaluate the ongoing mental health of individuals that are being held in those sorts of conditions? I absolutely think there's a role for mental health professionals in assessing inmates who are subjected to solitary confinement for extended periods. Any low stimulus environment can exacerbate underlying psychotic processes. And this is something that we see in our routine clinic patients as psychiatrists, Uh, who have psychosis, that when they're in a low stimulus environment, they're more likely to experience hallucinations. When we talk about managing people with dementia, we talk about making sure they have hearing aids, making sure that they have glasses so they can see and hear well, making sure that, that there's adequate light for them to see what's going on around them. All of these things increase the amount of actual real stimuli around them. And when those things are reduced, we know that internal stimuli tend to become much more salient. This is also true for inmates, even if they don't have an underlying diagnosed mental health problem. So I wonder if, if, you, you know, if you're working in an environment where safety is the number one issue and healthcare is the number two issue, 
what role would a psychiatrist or other mental health person play if there is a mental health concern in a population that's being confined? What I often find is that inmates who are doing poorly are very withdrawn and getting them involved in what limited activities there are going on can often make a big difference. That makes a lot of sense. And that would be similar to what you would find in a non-correctional inpatient setting. So uh, here's, here's my final question. Dr. Nanton, do you remember what year you started residency at Duke? 2004. 2004. Okay. I remember meeting you before your residency started in June. Do you recall when we first met? I do not. I do. And so, uh, ha, I got one on you. So um, <laughs> this was, we were um, in the food line at the graduation of the fourth year residency class that was finishing right before you began your internship. Okay, I, that sort of rings a bell now. So um, I also remember, uh, and you can't fake this one, Dr. Nanton, um, so I also remember what color shirt you were wearing because it was outrageous, and I thought, who is this guy, and uh, why is he in the food line? I, I had no idea that you were going to be one of the residents at Duke. It's not the first time my questionable taste in clothing has gotten me in trouble. So um, this is my question. What color was the shirt? Purple. Oh, good good guess. That would have been... That would have been a pretty... Uh, yeah, that was it? Likely color. No, no. It was uh, burnt orange. Oh, yeah. Okay, yeah. Yeah, that's a good one, too. <laughs> it was it was orange, yeah. But it wasn't just like a bright, like, um, traffic cone orange. It was like a like a, a darker orange. Well, I mean, a, a traffic cone orange would just be gaudy. <laughs> <laughs> I got it. Okay, okay. And maybe in your old age, as, a, as an attending psychiatrist... Um, You've kind of toned things down. I don't know. <laughs> a little. For those psychiatry residents who have made it this far and might have some interest in pursuing correctional psychiatry, I'd really encourage you to check it out. One of the things that I really like about it is that my appointment times are flexible. I can spend more time with patients who need it and less time with patients who don't. I don't have to deal with prior authorizations. There are, of course, some headaches like any treatment setting. But I have found that it has been a very rewarding place to practice medicine. So one of the things that I, I often hear from residents who have never stepped foot in a correctional setting is their presumed fear about their own personal safety. What would you say to them? I would say that I feel safer in the correctional setting where I work now than in the vast majority of inpatient settings where I've worked. That's not true at every jail or prison, although it is true at most of them. I would really encourage you, if you're considering it, to talk to the people who work there, take a look at the settings and the environment, how far away are uh, security officers if you do need help. Most of the time, these clinics are very safely run. I would go a step further and say that given that the mentally ill population has trans-institutionalized from state hospital uh, long-term wards to prison wards, that it should be a requirement that either all medical students or at least all psychiatry residents do at least one month in a correctional setting. I absolutely agree, and I think it would get a lot of people over the fear of working in a correctional setting. The patients that I see are really not that different to any other community uh, mental health setting where I've ever worked. 
Anything else, Dr. Nanton? That is all I've got. Thanks very much for having me. I really appreciate it.